up, Mr. Scott. Permission to come aboard, sir. Welcome to Now Playing's Star Trek Retrospective Series. We here at Now Playing will be reviewing all of the previous installments of the Star Trek movie franchise, going at warp speed towards the new J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie coming to theaters May 8, 2009. Bringing you the perspective of a Star Trek novice, a casual Star Trek movie fan, and a former hardcore Trekker, we will be providing spoiler-filled critiques of this long-running movie franchise. Today we're talking about Star Trek Insurrection, starring Patrick Stewart, Jonathan Frakes, Brent Spiner, F. Murray Abraham, and directed by Jonathan Frakes. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stewart, co-collaborator of Now Playing. Arnie, who just can't stop thinking about the line, he killed Mozart every time F. Murray Abraham is mentioned. Yes. We have our second Oscar winner as part of a Star Trek movie with F. Murray Abraham. But I guess first, the best place for this conversation to start would probably be the ever-popular plot summary. Oh, damn. That's going to be a hard one. I can't wait to hear this one. Yeah, I cannot wait to hear how you do this. It can't be worse (laughs) than Generations, but actually maybe it's very simple. We'll see. Arnie, go for it. The Federation is doing a covert surveillance of the primitive Baku people staying cloaked at all times because they don't want to violate the prime directive, being no showing technology to a primitive people. Data is stationed with them. However, he seems to go insane and starts beating up the Federation people and becomes a disembodied floating head running through the camp, obviously freaking out the Baku. I hate when that happens. Data then takes the Federation staff hostage on the planet. Admiral Doherty, who was in charge of the investigation, tries to corral Data, but when Picard hears about this, he insists that the Enterprise come to try to stop Data as well. They arrive, and Worf uses a remote control to turn Data off, and they then find out that he had suffered damage to his memory engrams, causing him to become violent. While investigating, they then find out that the Federation watching of the Baku is actually a transport mission, and Data had been attacked because he found a cloaked Federation vessel, which was one giant holodeck in the ocean and they were planning on taking all of the Baku putting them in the holodeck and transporting them to another world without them ever knowing and the reason they were doing this is because the planet Baku in this briar's patch of space is actually the fountain of youth while being there all of the crew of the Enterprise start noticing themselves regressing Worf goes through Klingon puberty including a giant zit on his nose all the women notice their breasts firming I currently notice them sagging so that's just me and that was a very disturbing line I have to say when I was watching this movie I'm like I don't want to hear you ever say that line ever again Jordy gets his eyesight back this planet can cure all ills and as current science sees aging as just a disease to be cured it also reverses aging. It turns out that the reason this is all happening is because F. Murray Abraham's character Rawful and his people are plastic surgery obsessed and constantly get skin stretching and such and they want to take over the planet so that they can regain their youth. Picard realizing this to be a direct violation of the Prime Directive disobeys Admiral Doherty's order to leave and instead sides with the Baku people fighting off Admiral Doherty's Federation folk and Rawful's people in trying to defend the Baku. Rawful first attacks by sending 
sending drones down to tag each of the Baku individually to then transport them off the planet. And when that doesn't work, Raffle just decides to kill them all, including Admiral Doherty. But it turns out Raffle is not only after the Fountain of Youth, his vengeance is personal because he is an expelled son of the Baku. He tried to stage a revolution a hundred years earlier. He and his cronies were banished and losing the gift of immortality and the fountain of youth, they have come to usurp their fathers. A battle ensues, Picard falls in love, Data learns how to play, and in the end, F. Marie Abraham is killed after he's betrayed by his first officer who is accepted back into the Baku. That wasn't so hard now, was it? I think we're going to start off right at the top of this movie. For some reason that blows my mind, Data is not on the Enterprise. He's on this planet. I don't understand that. I was confused through much of the movie. And I'm glad to listen to some of Arnie's plot summary because it did fill in gaps. Because as complicated as what you just said, Arnie, with all of that, the movie is super hard to follow from the get-go. I know I got turned around about nine ways trying to follow this movie. In fact, I want to rechristen it Star Trek Misdirections because it's all over the place. In the opening scene, we're not in space. We're like in the Sierra Mountains. There's all these like Little House on the Prairie people running around. <laughs> and all of a sudden, an invisible data is running around trying to kill everyone. And I'm like, did I miss 20 uh, minutes? I got two things to say before we get to that. First of all, it's data, not data. Second, was that not the most boring opening credit sequence ever? Oh, the yeah. floating bottle from part seven beats watching this Amish community. <laughs> We have a place where Abe Lincoln grew up near here called New Salem. And you go there and you get to watch people in old timey outfits make candles and churn butter. That's what this opening credit sequence reminded me of. <laughs> it is very utopian. They're setting up this utopian society. And it was just really, really boring. <laughs> it really was. And the music sucked. Yeah, it really did. But I got to say something about this plot. I agree with Stuart. Much of it was confusing. And I think the reason it was so confusing was the plot is incredibly simple. So what they did was they had this incredibly simple idea. And instead of just telling us what was going on, they let it, quote unquote, unfold. And as we got all the pieces to the puzzle, everything makes sense if you just think about it afterwards. The problem is while you're watching it, it goes all over the place. By the time it gets to the end when you have all the answers, you're like, that's it? Ah. Here's my theory behind it. The last movie, if you recall when we were talking about it, there were none of those stupid character subplots that Generations had. And we talked about that when we were discussing First Contact. And First Contact was the second most successful Star Trek movie in the entire franchise, second only to part four. Mm -hmm. And so I would think that the powers that be behind Star Trek might look at that and go, what did we do there? And let's do it again. Instead, the powers that be said, let's look at everything we did in part eight and do the opposite for part nine let's let's go against success because this movie even though i gave a plot summary it has no plot this movie is entire character moments if you are not a trek fan stay away from this film i'm saying it now i gave the plot of the baku and f murray abraham they are secondary the plot is Riker and troy fall in love Picard falls in love. Worf approves of Riker and Troy falling in love because, as we all know, Worf and Troy used to... Eh, 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 eh. They did? I didn't know that. <laughs> yes, yes, they did. Oh. Is that a joke? No, it's like the last three seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation, the TV show, Worf and Troy were a couple. 
No wonder he ended up on Deep Space Nine. He had to get away. <laughs> I feel your angry war. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this entire movie seems to be these character moments. And remember when we were talking in part seven and I started this conversation of what happens when a TV show becomes a movie? Do you feel like you're getting more out of a movie? I felt like this was a couple leftover episodes from the TV show because the TV show could do that. You get your action centric episodes and your character centric episodes and they're pacing this movie series like it's the TV series. Well, we had some action. Now it's time to give the characters some loving. And my God, there was just no plot here. There was no story here. Actually, I felt there was a story, as I said a minute ago about the unfolding thing. It was just a really simple story, so it allowed for the character moments. Because honestly, there has to be some story, because otherwise it wouldn't make any sense at all. It was just a really weak one. I'm going to offer a different theory here. I think there was too much story. I thought there was an overabundance of stories. It shouldn't have been called insurrection. It was insurrections. Everyone was rebelling against everything. And I loved one part of it and really nothing else. If the movie had stayed focused on the part that I thought was intriguing, it could have been the most impressive Trek movie we've watched. However, the movie careens in tone from comedy. I mean, it starts out and I'm thinking, oh, they're trying to do like a part four thing where it's all comedy, where it's lighthearted. Let's watch the Next Generation crew be goofy and splash around in the Fountain of Youth and Worf getting zits and all of this. And then it got interesting. Then it became about colonialism. And albeit it's kind of a civics lecture, but it's kind of what this series has always done, which is that it takes contemporary ideas and puts them in space. And suddenly we have Picard, what looked like to me anyway, like Picard was going to turn his back on Starfleet, the Federation and everything because they were exploiting and abusing a people for their own good. And when Data says, let's lock and load and everyone tosses off their uniforms, puts on leather jackets and goes down to the planet, I'm thinking, wow, anarchy. This is amazing. And then they back away from that. It becomes this like Dr. Seuss almost level of like, oh, these are the same people, but they look different. And it's just a skirmish. And once it becomes F. Murray Abraham is the bad guy. And it's really about the Baku and then whoever the other face lifting people are. Sonar. 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 I don't know. It's something like it sounds like sonar the same way F. Murray Abraham sounds like Raffle. Okay, I wrote it down phonetically. It's the sonar. But let me put it. All right. Well, let me be direct. Once I realized that Picard was not going to turn his back on the Federation, or they weren't going to make the Federation the bad guys, I totally didn't care anymore. Once it became these people are fighting each other and one are these Middle Earth woodsy hippie people and the other are these ultra face lifted straight out of Brazil via Hellraiser. I didn't care. (laughs) When watching this movie, I just couldn't help but wish that there was more moral ambiguity. I wish that the reason they did this insurrection was something where you could see both sides and Picard took one side and the Federation took another instead of this. The Federation is doing an evil thing, basically hijacking this planet. And I also wish that it was more the Federation doing it instead of this one-off crazy Admiral Doherty who has a special provision. Yes, he's doing what he's authorized to do, but it's a secret 
secret objective. It's not like the Federation stances this. It's that nobody knows, and so they're letting it happen. And so I never really felt like there was an insurrection. I never felt that Picard went against the Federation. Picard went against Doherty's little plot in the Federation. Doherty's direct order against him, right. Right. I agree. The insurrection is really between F. Murray Abraham's posse and the Baku, and that's not the insurrection I thought I was watching. I gotta say, you know, even sitting down to this movie, this was the first Star Trek movie I came into it not knowing a damn thing. I mean, I literally sat down and go, the only thing that I remembered is a false memory. I remember, and Arnie, help me out here. I remember seeing the commercial for this and seeing F. Murray Abraham running around like some green goblin via Rumpelstiltskin and him shrieking and his mouth tearing apart or something like that. Do you remember that? I think you're getting confused with the mummy. He did run around. <laughs> you did at the time say he looked like Rumpelstiltskin, but I don't remember his mouth ever tearing apart. All right. I don't even know why I remember it that way, but that's how I remember it. And it's not in the movie. I had no idea what this could even be about. And it's about so many things and nothing at the same time. And I think it's unfortunate. I don't blame Frakes, but he didn't do a very good job of directing a vision here. It's all over the place, and he did not really corral the different sensibilities into a cohesive whole. I want to get back to really one thing about the plot before we move on. And it was brought up in the movie, and I thought it was a technical thing, but I found it to be... Oh, I see his point of view. Because, Arnie, you said before, if you see both points of view, then it would be a real insurrection, isn't that? The Admiral said to Picard, these people are not indigenous to this planet. They came there 300 years ago. As soon as they said that, I'm like, that's not against the Prime Directive then. Because the Prime Directive is about indigenous peoples, if I remember correctly. And yes, it's a technicality. These people are living there. But then also I remembered Star Trek II. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, which was a belief that Spock and Kirk repeated a lot. Well, I'm not saying I agree with taking people off a planet, 600 people, so a million or billion people can live forever using the harnessing with all that kind of stuff of the power of this planet. But I can see the point of view of this admiral. He never once said, we're going to be rich. He'd said it's for the benefit of all star systems. So I don't think it's the right thing to do. I'll be very clear about that. But as far as seeing his point of view on why he's doing it, I did see that. Yeah, and that's the moral ambiguity that I liked. I agree. I think you can make just as good a case pro-Baku as anti-Baku relocation of the Baku. What I didn't understand is really what the Federation hoped to do once the Baku were gone. There was something there about a weapon that would destroy the briar patch and allow them to collect a sample to study so that they could research it and then turn it into a medicine for the betterment of the galaxy. But it was all very maybe and researchy and we don't know and catastrophic in that they weren't just moving these 600 people. They were going to destroy the entire system. You know, I thought in destroying the system, they would harness whatever that's in the rings around the planet. They found a way, they had the technology to harness that power and turn it into some sort of medication. That's what they told the Federation. I got the impression that F. Murray Abraham didn't have that at all. Well, these open a whole can of worms of more questions for me. I don't know. Why don't we just start at the beginning and go from there and maybe you guys can help me fill in the gaps. 
All right. So let's talk about the beginning. There's a couple of things I want to mention at the beginning. The Enterprise is on some ill-defined diplomatic mission, as they always are. And did you guys notice the dress uniforms? Because it was like somebody bedazzled the scenes from Love Boat. (laughs) I loved it. I loved the costumes in this movie. I loved every outfit. I particularly loved it when they're donning, like, the leather jackets and the casual wear. I always associate the next generation in those god-awful spandex bodysuits. You know, I'm fine with every outfit except those formal wear. I mean, seriously, it looked like they were Carnival Cruise Line, plus sparkles. (laughs) I would totally go on that cruise. I think that's awesome. (laughs) No, I love the costumes. I'm not going to knock them. There's that same scene that we have Worf there. My favorite part of this movie was... They didn't even bother trying to explain why Worf was there. They said, hey, Worf, what are you doing here? And they cut away to a different conversation. And so we don't really know. I thought that was a really funny joke. I love that because that was my big complaint about the last one is how they had to get Worf there. I love that, you know, it's almost a joke on me and people like me. Why is Worf here? Who cares? Worf's here. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly my point. It was really funny. And I thought that was the kind of stuff that was missing from more of this movie. Oh, come on. What about when Riker shaves his beard and he goes as smooth as an android's bottom? And then Data touches and goes, not quite. Yeah, I have a note on that. (laughs) I thought that was lame. <laughs> it, oh, of course it was lame, but it was it was still more of that humor, the same kind of wharf humor, the same kind of my breasts are firmer humor. I didn't like that joke either. But Arnie, they also had a joke about data is also a flotation device. I mean, there are jokes in this movie that just do not hit. The only joke that hit was the wharf one, and the zit stuff was kind of funny. But those kind of things are more fitting for the characters and the situations. The flotation device was clearly out there, obvious, kind of almost like a jump the shark moment of the humor. <laughs> and I felt that those forced jokes, the breast being firm, this is a Star Trek movie. Okay? The smooth androids bottom. Hey, Data. And he does, he does, no, I don't think so. That's not a Data thing to do. And from what I know of Data, it seemed really out of character. But the Worf thing seemed in character. Actually, all Data did was rub his chin and then make a face. I actually right. thought it worked. I actually okay. thought it was, uh, you know, I don't think Trek is ever going to pioneer comedy. I don't think a single <laughs> one of them did anything that was y- y- hilarious. These are characters. I happen to like this cast. I think yes. it's fun to watch them have a little bit of silliness. I was ready for it to get a little more serious when it got a little more serious. And then I was very disappointed when it shifted focus from a true insurrection to, oh, just some alien races don't like each other. Stuart, do you remember the last show, though, where we were like, I don't remember Riker being the jokester. You remember that? Yeah. This whole movie was that cheesy Riker sense of humor. It's like Jonathan Frakes may have written his own jokes for the last one, and the last one did so well, he's like, well, I'm going to make everyone tell these jokes now. Yeah, it definitely felt like he had written a choice part for himself to be a romantic lead, which is something I don't think had ever been considered, at least not when I watched the series. Was he he ever the stud? Absolutely. He was the Kirk. In the first season, he bedded so many women, and actually, I was recently reading, it was a problem because they kind of saw him emotionally abusing Troy because it was inferred that he and Troy had this great love, but then he was down sleeping with every woman on the planet. I don't even remember them having a thing. Oh, it was in the very first episode. Troy and Riker used to be together. It's kind of like Decker and Ilea. Okay, but in this movie, I thought the planet affected their sensibilities, which is why they fell back in love. Not entirely because... I mean, it helped awake old feelings, and that's what happened, as opposed to if they didn't go to this place, they wouldn't have fallen in love. 
Awakened old feelings? I think this stuff was uh, working like Viagra. I think that's all that was happening. <laughs> Admittedly, when he went to her quarters that one time and said, I need therapy, and then put his head in her lap, I'm like, okay, Riker's a little horny. I mm. didn't need to see this. <laughs> I, Seriously. I mean, it wasn't even subtle. It was, I'm here to hump you like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of enjoyed watching everyone kind of go through this thing. It did remind me of a Next Generation episode where they were all drunk because of some virus or something. I feel like most of the characters here are having fun and enjoying it. Oddly enough, the most popular character is the one that I think got the, the short end of the stick. Data I, had no role in this one. It, he spends most of the time trying to learn how to play with a child. And as stupid as that sounds, it doesn't even make sense in his character arc because he has an emotion chip. Well, they said that he left it behind. He sure did. But didn't he already know what playing was? I mean, he had already experienced all emotions and joy. It wouldn't have been that hard to at least recall that from his memory banks that he had had those sensations. To me, they didn't know what to do with him in this one. He couldn't get zits. There was no way that the planet could affect him because he doesn't age. At least his boobs could have firmed up. (laughs) But wait a minute. He does age. Doesn't the android skin age? Or we're supposed to give them a huge mulligan of the actor is aging, therefore you should ignore that. He's just an It was said in the series that he has an aging program. There you go. So he does age. So wouldn't the, I guess since it's a program, he can't de-age. Correct. Yeah, I just felt like they didn't have anything in this scenario for him to do. And playing with a kid in a haystack was not something I needed. Yeah, I honestly feel a little sorry for Brent Spiner in this one. Why, if Jordy can see and Worf has a zit and breasts are firming, is all the crew acting up and goofy? Here's what I don't understand. Why does Data go crazy? Oh, I got that. I got that. He, I got he that. was shot in the head. He was shot in the head because he found the holographic ship. Again, if they explain that in the beginning, it'd be so clear, but they drop it as it goes. He was shot in the side of the head because he found the holographic ship and therefore went into some sort of, and it's not the right term, survival mode. He felt he was being attacked and therefore he had to get off planet. He had to attack everybody because he was in survival mode for his own good. Oh, it had nothing to do with the planet's regenerative qualities. Not Nothing. Ah, that was what I could not piece together. Okay, got it. The story is ill-told. It really is clumsy, yes, and it's explained. There's so much backstory. There's so much that requires someone turning to the camera and saying, well, because of this and blah, 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 blah. Audiences, particularly people that don't watch a lot of sci-fi, can only process so much. You got to show, don't tell. That's a screenwriting rule, and they break that rule badly here. Well, one thing that I've noticed with all these Trek movies, and it's it's a stereotype, but it really fits – is they fall so deep into technobabble. Say, it's kind of like they say the same thing about ER, but ER is using real terms. But they're terms you don't know. But through the context and the acting and everything, you're supposed to understand the meaning of what they're saying instead of what they actually say. So when you have Jordy going, the blast to his head damaged his memory engrams and activated survival mode, you know, that's technobabble. It doesn't mean anything. But what they're trying to tell you is Data got shot in the head and went nuts. Mm, yeah, I kind of zone out. I become like a Homer Simpson. My eyes glaze over and whenever they get into that mode. So maybe that's why large parts of this movie don't make any sense to me. Is because they try to explain things in their terminology. I just, I can't connect. I don't know what they're talking about. Hold on, I would like to correct Brock's description by one thing. I don't think Data entered survival mode because I don't think they'd let a Starfleet officer be in command of a ship if the moment he gets damaged, screw y'all, I'm for me. 
you know, I think that something else happened. Yeah, well, yeah, but I don't really know the right term, but meaning that he felt threatened and therefore he was defending himself. Yeah, I, I don't know why he was attacking the Federation officers either, but it takes a leap of logic to believe that an android would ever be in charge of a ship anyway because things do malfunction. Well, to go on further with the data thing, because it has to be mentioned, the way they talk him down is Gilbert and Sullivan. And I like culture probably more than the next guy, but I just... It's 19th century, not 20th century. But, I mean... You're really going to bring up this complaint again? It's not It's not again. It's Yeah, still, it's again. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Look, let's put it this way, okay? Gilbert and Sullivan is wonderful. It really is. But does it have any place in a Star Trek movie? It just felt so... I'm like, oh, Brent Spiner... Having an album coming out, ladies and gentlemen, hear him sing. Well, I was about to say, aren't these guys all from the theater? Isn't this all like just theater guy humor? That's what it feels like to me. It was like, these are people that probably have done that show, have worn the tights. I know Stuart has done Shakespeare. So these yeah. they're making references. It's not like, I mean, I would be more surprised if they did like a Run DMC rap or something like that. <laughs> that would have surprised me more. <laughs> Can you imagine if they break into a Bohemian Rhapsody instead of doing Gilbert and Sullivan? That would be so much more entertaining. I would kill to see Worf doing the Gojuda and then Picard and Data. No, we will not let you go. That would be great. <laughs> yeah. Be fantastic. But instead we have Worf following the bouncing ball and singing Gilbert and Sullivan, which again, great song. I just felt uncomfortable almost watching. I'm like, oh, this kind of stuff again. And same thing with Picard doing the Mambo. I was like almost embarrassed for him and thank goodness that ended so quickly, the Mambo thing. Yeah. Because it really felt uncomfortable. I understood what they were doing and why that Mambo scene was there. I understood why the Gilbert and Sullivan thing was there. I just didn't agree with the choice. It made me, the audience, feel like, oh, come on. Well, it's like this, Brock. I mean, I agree with you and I was afraid I was in for a whole movie of that. That's why I was like, oh, yeah. no. But they do pretty much cut that out at the 40, 45 minute mark. Yes, once we figure it out. Yeah, once we figure out what's really going on and then i'm like okay i couldn't have taken a whole movie of that agreed an intro a third of the movie where they're being silly that's fine it just doesn't really fit with the rest of the movie but then again this movie is in pieces and shards it doesn't fit together at all right I realized with that opening scene with Data on that assault craft that they're setting up that assault craft and Data piloting it for use later in the movie. I completely get it. Right. And that Data is supposed to be invincible and the only way they get him is by distracting him with a song. But I don't buy it either that he was so distracted by a song that he didn't notice their shuttlecraft docking with his so that Worf could use the universal remote to turn him off. <laughs> Speaking of technology that bring up early to bring back later, I thought the idea, the plan of Ramen Noodles and his friends of the holodeck ship was brilliant. What a smart idea. A cloaked holodeck ship that can take people off planet. That was really neat. There's two problems I see with this. First of all, they planned on letting them off the holodeck. I would have actually bought it more if the plan was to leave them on the holodeck and let them just fly into space forever. But the moment you take them off, you're not going to find an identical planet. And are you going to rebuild their houses? I mean, how far are you going to go with this when the holodeck could just do it for you? Leave them on the holodeck. Yeah, yeah, good point. And the second problem is, all of a sudden, as soon as they're on that holodeck and off the planet, one of them is going to go, Achoo! Oh, crap. <laughs> yep. I thought the holodeck ship, the cloaked ship, that was really cool special effects. The data head floating, I thought that was okay. The the data head floating, my newscaster at my local podunk TV station does that every Halloween by wearing a green suit. 
I know, I know, <laughs> but it was kind of fun. It was kind of cheesy fun, but overall the special effects in this movie were lacking, but the ideas were good. The front projection and the rear projection were completely obvious in this movie. And this isn't, what year is this, 1999? I, I should not be picking out front projection. Can I tell you something with this? I was watching this movie, and about 30 minutes in, I wrote in my notes, this is not ILM. And then I waited for the credits, and no, it was not Industrial Light and Magic. Every time we watch these series, when we say it's a bad FX set, ILM is not in the credits. And that's what happened is they went with, you know, Band from the Ranch or one of those other B-level companies. And I'm not going to say ILM's the only one because obviously Lord of the Rings, Weta has shown that it can be done just as good by other companies. But these people that the Paramount are hiring are cut rate, step above made for TV movie science fiction stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know. You guys are always picking on the special effects. I've never heard you say one you liked other than the last one. I thought they were fine. I have no beef with the special effects. Yes, they looked a little hokey, but I went with it. I gotta say, given that we have really watched an evolution in watching these movies, because with the Enterprise E, we really start seeing the transition to all CG ships from having actual physical models. The E was the first one. There still was a physical model, but they did some CG the space shots look good, and I think that some of those were CG. It's just whenever they got on that planet, it was, you know, 1981. Yeah, I agree. I'd like to talk about some of those character moments. You mentioned this movie's basically character moments. Were there any character moments that you liked? I really thought a very touching scene was actually Jordy getting to see the sunrise. I really liked that. Agreed. I never think about Jordy too much. He's always been kind of in the background. He's always defined by the fact that he wears a hair uh, barrette in his face. <laughs> and now he doesn't. And he actually, his eyes are healed and he can see a sunrise like anyone else. I thought that was nice. They could have even lingered on that moment a little longer, I thought. I completely agree with you. And that's the first thing that pops in my mind about the great scenes. Although I have to say, my wife, when we were watching this movie, and he's sitting there. I'd never seen the sunset before and I could have missed my chance. And then she said but just don't take my word for it right after he said that about the sunrise. You know, honestly, I would have loved to see this be the end for Jordy. I would have loved to see him find love instead of Picard with the Baku and leaving him there with the Baku at the end of the episode. Honestly. And I say episode, I meant movie, but again, as I said earlier, this feels just like an episode. But this would have been a wonderful way to write Jordy off if LeVar Burton didn't need more movie roles mm -hmm. because it is a touching moment. And I know we're not talking about the next movie, but in the next movie, he's back to the artificial eyes. Mm -hmm. I think this could have been a wonderful character arc fulfillment end instead of a forced one. It would have been a nice end for Jordy. I do agree with that. I liked actually the Riker Troy stuff. I actually liked most of the stuff. I liked the Worf stuff. Keep in mind, I watched all seven years of this show and I haven't seen this crew. I haven't watched any reruns since then. I have seen this crew exactly one time each time these movies came out in theaters. This is my return to them and seeing Generations, it didn't quite do it. And seeing First Contact, it was an enjoyable movie, but seeing this movie reconnected me with these character arcs that I'd seen in the series there. And so a lot of them worked for me. A lot of the jokes didn't. And I was groaning, especially at the flotation device. That one was a real, real groaner. But as far as the character moments, the Troy kicking Riker out because his beard was scruffy and she hadn't kissed him with the beard, even though she had in season three. But that's not there here nor there. But 
you know, those moments worked for me. And that's what I got to say about this movie. I said earlier, if you're not a Trek fan, stay away from this movie. I stand by that. But if you are a Trek fan, I think this movie's straight for you. If you like the Next Generation's characters and you sat with them for seven years watching them grow because the original series, the characters were the same in episode 79 as they were in episode one. Here you had characters who evolved and now we're seeing them come back and we're getting those character moments and getting to see the people. I like that. The other thing I liked is Dr. Crusher got to shoot a gun. We never seen her shoot a gun as far as I knew. She always runs away and helps the injured. And Troy and her got almost everyone they shot at, didn't they? It was amazing. Can we talk about that? I had a beef. Here we are. They're setting it up. This is the insurrection, or so I think. They've made passing uh, references to the Holocaust, to colonialism. There's a biblical quality to watching these people in Exodus, their village uh, being led away. And I thought, oh, okay, they're trying to reference all of these things. But no, there are no life and death stakes here. The only thing that's going to happen if those things get the people is they beam off. And the only things being shot at are robots. I, To me, it's like, okay, so there's no blood. This is a bloodless revolution. Mm, good point. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And that goes back to my thing of wishing this cause were a little less black and white. The whole insurrection plot just doesn't quite work. It's mediocre at best. It's, it's it would have been great if they had gone there. It would have been great if they were killing Federation people to save the Baku because they would have really taken a stand there. Shooting down a robot that's going to beam you away to a nice place... Uh, no, that's hardly a holocaust. At least they did up the stakes. After the Federation started fighting back and they killed Admiral Doherty, which I actually love that death, death by face stretching. I thought that was really appropriate, even though the effects were again bad. But after the Admiral is killed, then Roffel decides we're going to kill the people. We're not going to transport them. We're going to kill them. And that does up the stakes a little. But I guess in what Stuart's saying is it's too little too late. Agreed. Yeah, I don't, I don't want Roffel making that decision. The insurrection is against Federation policy and the Baku with the Enterprise crew in the middle. And since we're thinking about what might have been, wouldn't it have been more interesting if some of the crew disagreed with Picard and some didn't go with him? I thought it was strange that everyone was like, oh yeah, let's give up everything that we've signed up for to help 600 people because they don't want to leave the, you know, the spa. Well, no, wait, the only people who went with him are his, the people at the meetings, the the top level people, the people he the has. ones we care about. Yeah, the yes, exactly. <laughs> well, that's my point. Yeah, what would it have been something if Riker disagreed? And wouldn't yes. it have been something if Sulu assassinated the Klingon? <laughs> I guess that's what I'm saying, and it's crystallizing for me now. Movies are about stakes. On TV, you can explore these ideas and alien cultures and whatever. But when you make a movie and you're asking me to pay money and go to the big screen, there's got to be high stakes. The Borg taking over the Enterprise, high stakes. This, it does not have high stakes at all. Well, you're talking about wouldn't it have been cool if this and that. Another thing they had in this movie, wouldn't it have been cool if Donna Murphy, the woman that Picard falls in love with, who she can slow down time? Yeah. Wouldn't it have been cool if she was the source of the Fountain of Youth, her alone? So this entire plan would have failed completely because she was the reason this entire planet, this entire community of 600 people were ceasing to age and aging backwards and living this idyllic life? As the producer reading your script, I gotta say... Yeah, I'd have to see how it's executed. I can't say the idea itself grabs me. Okay. Thank you, <laughs> Mr. Producer. But my, my point is that they had that whole thing set up 
this power, that magical power that she had, wouldn't it have been cool if that magical power was the reason? I watched this movie not too long ago, and until this moment, I repressed that time slowing down thing. I took that as a metaphor. I didn't think it was actually the Matrix where she could dodge bullets, you know? <laughs> I was just about to say, if this movie had come out two years later, they would have had bullet time effects in it. <laughs> I mean, I really just thought that it was feeling like time slowed down because of their love for each other and their enjoyment of the moment. I don't think she was the Neo of the Baku. You're, you're probably right. <laughs> Well, here's the thing, though. I mean, if you're going to say that it's a planet and not a person, what are they doing with that planet now? I mean, what got resolved there? It's kind of like the Genesis planet. In fact, it's very similar to the Genesis planet. And what the writers realized with that conceit is we have to blow this thing up because <laughs> to, ha to have this idea that there's this planet that can regenerate life, it's a can of worms that we don't want, a Pandora's box we don't want to open. But, you know, they've done that with time travel, too. It just seems to me like, okay, now we got a magical planet where you never age. Can you die? I mean, does someone die on that planet? No, can, they live can, forever. Well, Jesus, why wouldn't everyone move there? Well, that's the whole point, is everyone, I think, wants to. No, they're trying to export whatever it's got. They're not trying to bring people in. I'm saying, why can't you just beam people in, get them young, beam them off, and just treat it like any kind of day spa? You'd think that would be a great export. They could yeah. charge a ton. Yeah. For real. Well, there's no money, but yeah, you could do something. Stuart, you said you'd like one of the cast to rebel, and that reminded me of something I read when I was doing my background information on this movie. Remember how I said they looked at part eight and decided to jettison everything that worked? Yeah. Well, what really happened is the producers looked and decided they wanted to get away from the militaristic view and go back to Roddenberry's vision. And one of Roddenberry's visions and one of his core statements during The Next Generation was the cast doesn't fight with each other. The crew is a unit with no infighting. And what's funny is, and Stuart and I have said this before, Roddenberry croaked and immediately they make Deep Space Nine where it's all the crew fighting amongst themselves. <laughs> and it's a dump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like the anti-Roddenberry vision of Star Trek. And it ended up becoming a serialized drama about a major war. It had nothing to do with science and exploration. So what happened here is they tried to get back to that Roddenberry vision. So the crew couldn't rebel against each other. You couldn't have Geordi or Riker going, I'm following orders. You know, you couldn't have that and be true to Roddenberry's core statements. Hmm, interesting. I can see that because I feel like that's probably the main reason why they didn't actually make the Federation the bad guys and ended up having F. Murray Abraham step in to be the bad guy with this one Federation captain acting on his own. I think you could have gotten around it, but it comes down to just bad creative direction. Mm-hmm. I have two quick questions before we end up. First question is, the Briar Patch is called the Briar Patch. And just in case those listening don't know, it's a reference to the Uncle Remus story with Br'er Rabbit. And actually, Jonathan Frakes in the movie says, well, it's time to use the Briar Patch as Br'er Rabbit did. Now, from what I remember of the story, this is based on Song of the South, as I saw it in the movie when I was a kid and I had the record, to get out of being hurt or cooked by the fox and the bear, Br'er Rabbit says, well, you can do anything you want to do to me, but whatever you do, don't throw me in that briar patch. And he says it over and over again. Whatever you do, oh, you can you can do this and this and that, but don't throw me in the briar patch. So then what they do? Well, we're going to do exactly what we don't want to do. We're going to throw him in that briar patch. And, of course, he was born in the briar patch, and therefore he knows like the back of his hand, and he escapes. He tricks them into throwing him in the briar patch. Explain to me how <laughs> what the Enterprise did in the briar patch has anything to do with what Br'er Rabbit did. 
Furthermore, why is it called the Briar Patch? Yes, why are they still teaching Uncle Remus? It seems to me like that would have been something forgotten by time. When Walt Disney brought it up in Song in the South, it was to make sure the stories were not forgotten. <laughs> and Disney never releases that movie now. I mean, if Disney's forgotten about it, you can best believe the 24th century people have forgotten about it as well. So I don't understand why they even call it the Briar Patch, and I don't understand how Riker even thinks it is using the Briar Patch like Br'er Rabbit did. And that goes right into my second point is, how is the manual control for the Enterprise a joystick? I don't really have a comment there besides... I found that really odd. I can't answer that. I mean, what do our fighter pilots use? A joystick. It is the single most reactive, controllable thing. The Star Trek controls of the next generation have never been believable to me because the last thing I want to do is drive a car with my iPhone. I miss the button so many freaking times. <laughs> it is just impossible. You guys both get text messages from me that are probably you think they're in Klingon. They're like, oh boy, Arnie's regressed to Trektum again. But no, I just can't hit the damn keys. Well, wait a minute. This little thing was like a handheld like joystick, like an Atari, old-fashioned 2600 kind of controller with an ergonomic grip, but it was still kind of a very small tabletop sort of joystick. The fighter pilots from what I saw in Top Gun, I haven't flown a plane, is those yokes. I'll go one bigger than where you're at. I did not understand a single thing that Jordy and Riker were doing in space with those facelifting people. I literally, there's something about ejecting the engine and then they had a joystick and they were going into a place and then siphoning some gas and in. A I mean, tear in something or other, a subspace tear. They were tearing yeah. through time, a zipper. <laughs> I did not. That was, we, we talked earlier about techno babble. That was just to me, it was like peanuts and the parents. It was like, wah, 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 wah. I'm like, eventually we're going to get back to Little House on the Prairie and I'm going to kind of know what's going on because right now I have no clue. Yep. Yep. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap this up. Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Star Trek Insurrection? Stuart. Ugh. It's, this is a tough call for me. I was prepared to say no. Here's what it is. I see so much potential in it, and I really like this cast. I'm going to give it the Generations recommendation. If you like the Next Generation cast, and you can be very tolerant for a lackadaisical story that really goes nowhere or doesn't go where it promises it should go, eh, it's worth watching. I don't know. It's, is it good? No. Did I enjoy watching it? Kind of. Arnie. It's a very weak recommendation, but it's almost the exact opposite of Stewart's. I didn't necessarily enjoy the movie, but I enjoyed some of the characterizations. I thought the characterizations were good, but overall the plot was weak. And the last third, when they get away from those character moments and decide we're going to be an action film now, they lost me during that. I was just like, okay, please end. And it's not a, <laughs> all right, maybe I'm going to agree with Stuart 100%. It's not a good movie, <laughs> but it's fun to see these characters again. <laughs> I'm agreeing with her 100%. So there you have it. So you recommend it or not? It's a weak recommendation only for fans of the Star Trek Next Generation series because this is just another episode in the series. And I don't think any other cast could have done this. I wouldn't have liked this if it were Bakula or Janeway or Hawk, whoever that guy was from Spencer for Hire, or even Kirk. I think it's really because I like a lot of these characters and they're having fun here, at least part of the time. 
even think that this flies above uh, above the line. Have you ever even seen the Bacula episodes? I tried to watch one once. It was kind of it was weird because I felt like it was going to turn into a sex film at any minute. There was all this <laughs> skin tight clothing and people rubbing against each other, and I kept thinking, "Is this porn?" I think one of the like this Vulcany woman that I had had like triple D's. I'm like, "What the hell is she doing on here?" <laughs> and she's kind of a clone of Angelina Jolie. But I have to say, by the you saw probably the very first episode from your description. By the time the third season rolled around, that cast could have pulled this movie off. None of the others, though. Mm. And I agree sort of with both of you on the movie does have its moments, but I can't recommend this one. I didn't like it when I first saw it. I like parts of it, just like now, but I don't think the age has helped it. It has not aged well either. I love this cast. I love these characters. I think there's a lot of great stuff that can be done in a Star Trek movie. But of the three we've seen so far with the Next Generation cast, it's a weak, it's an almost recommend, let's put it that way. But it's not. I can't give it the uh, the okay. If you are watching the entire series, yeah, you should probably get around to this one. But I would watch other things first. So I want to thank you all for joining us today for Now Playing's review of Star Trek Insurrection. Please go to our website, www.nowplayingpodcast.com, where you can find our other episodes in the Star Trek Retrospective series and other episodes about all the other movies we've reviewed. You can also find a link to our forums, where you can discuss this episode and many others with your fellow listeners. And I invite you to send us an email with your thoughts and comments. And the email address is show at nowplayingpodcast.com. I want to thank Stuart and Arnie for joining me today. Thanks, guys. No problem. Two more to go. And just remember, your iPod cannot be used as a flotation device, but it is smooth as an Android's bottom. Yes. And we will join you again when we talk about Star Trek Nemesis. Live long and prosper. Dude. (laughs) Space. The final frontier. These are the continuing voyages the starship enterprise your ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds to seek out new life forms and new civilizations to boldly go where no man has gone Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Look Back at all of the films in the Star Trek series. Be sure to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com every Friday from now until the release of the new movie May 8th for a new installment in our Trek retrospective. Star Trek and all the Star Trek universe contains is copyright and trademark Paramount Pictures, all rights reserved. Now Playing is not affiliated with Paramount Pictures. Gentlemen, your work today has been outstanding. I tend to recommend you all for promotion. You know, whatever fleet we end up serving. Now Playing is a production of Inganza Media Incorporated. Copyright 2009. All rights reserved. Star Trek Insurrection. Starring Patrick Stewart, Jonathan Franks. Jonathan Franks and Beans. (laughs) (laughs) 
patch of space known as the Briar's Nest. Briar's Patch. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> Thank you, the Donald. Did you just cut one? No, that's the movie that you're smelling. <laughs>